Hey folks, welcome to the Did You Know Crypto Podcast. Today we have a real treat for you. Coming back again is Jeffrey Tucker, who was last here uh, on episode 12, and we are doing a 10 years in review. We kind of talk about all the different stuff that's going on in Bitcoin over the over 10 years in kind of a, a wider range scope, but I really think you're going to enjoy it. We touch on a lot of different subjects uh, from politics uh, to you know the scaling debate to everything that you can think of in between. It's a really fun discussion. If you could do one big favor for me, if you could go to iTunes and leave a five-star review and a written review if possible. If you want to also help out the podcast in other ways, you can go to supportmypodcast.com. That's supportmypodcast.com. And it has links to shop on Amazon, all that kind of good stuff. But the best thing you can really do right now is to share stuff on social media and leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform that you use. But most of all, I want to thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome the very first repeat guest, actually, Jeffrey Tucker, Editorial Director for the American Institute for Economic Research, Chief Liberty Officer at Freedom.me, founder of the Atlanta Bitcoin Embassy, and author of countless articles and books, including his latest called Right-Wing Collectivism, The Other Threat to Liberty. Mr. Tucker, welcome back to the show. Thank you. You know, um, it's so interesting you say my latest book because... um, I'm very excited to say that I have a I have another book coming out actually in about a month, actually, and it's called "The Market Loves You: Why You Should Love It Back." It's a uh, very Doctor Strange love. <laughs> Thank you. Well, anyway, it takes it takes a long time to come up with the title. I'm I'm very happy with the book. It's it's a collection of articles, and 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 it does have a a, a whole section on 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 money and. Discusses Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in some detail and why I think it's so significant. No, it sounds great. I've been, you know, eagerly awaiting your next book, and uh, you know, I, I like to. It's you know, it has been a little while, I guess, since it has been released. But uh, I like to to plug those sorts of things, especially ones that I find to be very informative and and uh, that I enjoy. And I did want to talk about that specific topic maybe a little bit later because I think it does fit very well into our topic about Bitcoin, you know, its future and being intertwined with our future. After our last interview, we talked about doing a 10 years in review episode, and I'm really glad that we are. We've now seen the anniversary for the white paper, the Genesis block, and the Hal Finney Twitter announcement and growth from mere theory to, you know, $70 billion in total market cap, you know, and it's been an amazing ride. Well, and we're in, we're in very strange times, like right now. And I, like you, I kind of track the ethos of the industry and public culture as regards uh, crypto. And and just two days ago, there was a, a headline. I was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal about how <laughs> it won't surprise you, Bitcoin is dead, and nobody cares about it anymore, and it didn't live up to the hype, and it's just this big disaster, and everybody who got in is now broke, and so on and so on. And, you know, I read this story, and, <clears throat> you know, I, I, th- these tend to be bullish signs to me, actually, when these kinds of articles uh, appear, especially in big uh, uh, 
venues like the Wall Street Journal. And I just quickly looked at the numbers and saw that uh, Bitcoin is up 17% since it's uh, low. And I'm just talking about Bitcoin alone. Um, but, you know, there's been all kind of activity in the markets. And, and I just can't sort of get groovy with this line that crypto is dead because, you know, any of us who have had this history in, in Bitcoin and, and everything remember, we all have our own memories, right? But my most salient memory is when it hit $30 and the world was screaming that it was an insane tulip mania and a bubble. Uh, that was completely out of control. And so, um, you know, and I didn't know if that was true or not. I don't know the right price, price for Bitcoin. I didn't know if it was in a bubble or if it was just beginning or what. I'm not clairvoyant. Nobody is. Um, <clears throat> but I, I guess my point is that that if you're going to say, you know, in 2013, $30 is an absurd high price, that that no magic internet money could be worth 30 times the world's most powerful fiat currency, then you can't at the same time say when Bitcoin is $4,000 that it, therefore it's dead. Do you see what I mean? No, it's it's very much a macro, not a micro view. And, and probably a lot of the readers and and people, you know, in kind of the Wall Street Journal and Forbes crowd really probably weren't paying attention until October, November of, of 2017. And and probably didn't even pay attention before it was even four thousand dollars in twenty seventeen. So all they saw was this rise up to twenty thousand, and now it's at four thousand. So obviously it's dead. Yeah, and I don't find the current patterns, um, price patterns of of Bitcoin, to be actually all that unusual from what I've experienced in in my time. And I'm not I'm not an original gangster in a sense that you know, like I wasn't one of these guys who saw it you know, hit a dollar and then crashed down to three cents or whatever, you know, in the early days. I wasn't really part of it then. I was on the sidelines as a skeptic, actually. Um, but I do remember, you know, the seesawing back and forth. Uh, you know, it was $150 and it was $80 and it was $1,000 and it's $300 and so on and so on. And, uh, and what's funny about this is it's really an experiment in human psychology that when the momentum is going up, the screaming gets louder, people start paying attention, the buyers, the, the newbie buyers jump in, then they get uh, hit when the price falls down again, then everybody says, see, you're losing your shirt on this, on this bogus investment. And then when it goes up again, you know, the people who bought low, you know, just kind of preen around and peacock around, but then they don't sell when it gets high because they're hodlers and so on. And, you know, you just watch this drama take place and it gets kind of boring and uh, a little bit exhausting and i think you know if for 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 people who are int getting interested in this right people who have been interested in it for some years you really have to ask the question you know what like what is it about this technology that interests you is it is it just you know you're buying something out there and you hope you're buying it low and you hope you're going to sell it high or do you understand you know what the implications of this technology are in terms of our relations with the state, in terms of uh, technology for documenting ownership rights, you know, is it something you believe in or is it not? And I think this is an important question that people really have to ask themselves. And, and then otherwise, you need to recognize that this is a technology very much in its infancy. Uh, 20 years ago, nobody even imagined such a thing as cryptocurrency. I mean, or maybe the people who imagined it couldn't figure out how to make it work. They just maybe imagined it could someday exist. But 
you know, the reality of of cryptocurrency is is a transformative event, and it's and it's still very much in the early stages. It's interesting you talk about signals. I was just looking at the charts for the Bitcoin hash rate, and basically the the peak of of hash rate was actually in kind of mid uh, twenty eighteen, I believe. Now we're starting to see it approach that period again, you know, just right before we're, we're at uh, levels right before the peak of 2018. And actually, it's higher than it even was in 2017. And I was actually talking this morning to a gentleman named Christopher Bendixson about Bitcoin mining. And we recorded an episode on that. And, and one of the things we discussed is that Bitcoin sends out very clear signals uh, of course, there's external factors and, and spillover from traditional markets, but Bitcoin's not manipulated in the same way, and it sends out very clear signals compared to uh, the fiat-controlled markets. And I don't think that miners would be increasing increasing hash rate and scouring the earth for cheaper energy to expand and make their operations more efficient if they think it's dead. That's really interesting. That sounds about right. And, you know, I think that... Uh, you know, these are the times that sort of challenge challenge uh, 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 people. And I, I, you know, I was I was around in 2017, and I went to all the conferences, and I saw the you know the absurdities taking place. And I must say that I've been over been in 2018. You know, the conferences I've been in been to have been much more intellectually stimulating, productive, and robust. You know, this is just. The way um, new technological markets come and go. I mean, they, they, they there, there's an ebb and flow to it, uh, depending on on uh, mass psychology, uh, essentially. And this is true in any big technology. I mean, like you know, I, I lived through the dot com bust, you know, and I the boom and bust in the late '90s, and then saw the rebuilding in the early 2000s and then gradually saw how the the technology of the internet just transformed our lives and the world economy but boy i tell you what in 2000 uh 2001 you couldn't find anybody who would say that that was possible everybody just saw that as like one of history's great mistakes <laughs> internet commerce you know so and you know this and it's true also the railroads in the uh in the, in the second half of the 19th century you know you saw just these these wild frenzies up and down you know railroads are great no railroads are terrible oh this is a great investment oh look you lost your shirt and so on and the headlines are always filled with people thinking short term you know uh and if you followed the headlines of the railroad industry between about uh, 1860 and 1890, it was just nothing but but uh, land speculation, stock market fraud, uh, uh, boom and bust, uh, crashes, disasters, and so on and so on. But then you step back from it, you realize, oh my God, you know, the railroads transformed transportation and dramatically shrunk the world for everybody and just vastly enhanced our standard of living. Just as the internet would do, you know, a hundred years later, and I think um, cryptocurrency has the potential to do that and more. Actually, I think the significance is actually even more um, uh, salient than any technology that we've experienced in the last couple of hundred years, for very fundamental reasons. No, I agree, 
if you look at any tech innovation, um, you know, in the history of computing, in the early days, it was IBM was the big dogs. Uh, this is a this is a system for business. This is not something that people are going to want in their homes. And then once PC came around, and and then you know the internet internet came, and and there's a lot of overlap between the uh, growth of the internet, obviously, and, and the PC market. But I I remember hearing people say, you know, this thing is just a fad. Uh, it's you know it's it's neat, but it's never going to catch on. And we all kind of remember uh, Paul Krugman's very famous. A pronunciation on the fax machine that that the internet would have as much uh, impact on the economy as the fax machine paraphrasing uh, of course but um, and and I'm sure that I'll have this in my life at some point where I'll I'll be um, set a bit in my ways and I'll, I'll be a naysayer on some kind of new and up-and-coming technology uh, and I guess in, in a way we all were with Bitcoin at one point we all didn't immediately uh, jump on the idea of Bitcoin the, the first time we heard of it so we're all kind of guilty of that as well we were i mean i certainly was i mean i you, you know I'm, I'm embarrassed when i look back at my own personal history with all this stuff because i had seen when you know just keep in mind i'd had a, a pretty uh, extensive experience with other experiments in digital currency a lot of people don't remember this but you know there's digital cash and e-gold and all kinds of things that were happening because when once it became clear that the internet was um so, something that was actually viable economically the very next step was well we, we need a money for the internet and so there were all these experiments out there and they kept failing and failing and failing and then the people behind them turned out to be shady characters or their software wouldn't work or the systems actually what usually happened is that their systems got hacked and all kind of you know spam emails were being sent out and then people were clicking on them and you know phishing attempts and people were losing their money and so you know it was just it was just a just a disaster uh, because one of the one of the well, let me just say that I kind of wrote it off. I thought, well, I've seen this fail too often, and so when Bitcoin came out, actually, and I got my first kind of notice about this in in the fall of two thousand ten, I, I got my first like official communication, although I had heard rumblings about it. Um, I just kind of lumped it in with every previous failure. And this is a mistake because, you know, I, I didn't understand that the failure of, of DigiCash and eGold and the rest of these um, attempts to come up with a brand new currency that was priced according to, you know, a market that was independent of fiat currency. I didn't understand that they had failed for particular reasons. It wasn't that as a class... It was not possible to create new money. New money. I just I thought that um, um, you know I, di I didn't understand the particulars for why. Although I knew there was hacking involved and stuff like that, but it didn't occur to me to think well that failure is a sign that something needs to be tweaked. You know that that's a technical fix. You know, and I couldn't imagine it. And I I had decided that um, it was not possible to create a new money. Now, uh, that sounds like an extreme conclusion, but it's actually not uh, an extreme conclusion when you consider there's a certain theoretical impetus behind it. <clears throat> there's this uh, theory that had been floated around for about the last century that had been, uh, that's generally attributed to Ludwig von Mises called the regression theorem. And the idea is that a money has to originate in barter exchange 
like a commodity that you're using in, in, in barter. And then <clears throat> that, that gradually becomes ever more valuable and people acquire it not for consumption purposes but to trade at a later date. And then that becomes the money. And then once you have a good that functions as a medium of exchange and a store of value, then there's a network effect that kicks in that makes it um, the money and then no other future money is necessary. And then uh, uh, and no matter how bad that money gets, you know, whether it's subject to central bank manipulation or inflation or, you know, it's got all kind of third-party problems or there's counterparty risk in, in uh, the payment systems associated with it, no matter what, how bad it ever gets, there's absolutely no hope for replacing that money with a new money unless, and, 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 and to the extent that this new money emerges again out of a barter exchange, which that can't happen because we're in, in too advanced a economic structures for any co commodity to ever, you know, organically emerge the way the early currencies did in, say, the high Middle Ages. So that was my thinking, and from which I concluded that the only hope for any monetary reform was to somehow change the dollar from being a fiat currency into a sound money that it once was, the problem with that is that that will never happen because the guardians of the system like the system exactly as it is. So I became a kind of a, I guess you would say like a hopeless nihilist on the monetary question. Like I didn't think there was, there was any, any chance for any change. And the failures of these pre-Bitcoin digital currencies just further reinforced my, what you could say is like a, a deep bias that was rooted in a kind of a high-level theory that I thought it was ridiculous. So by the time Bitcoin came along, I thought, nope, that's dumb. This is silly. Uh, people far less smart than I am are uh, far less smart than 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 I are, are wasting their time on this silly little uh, jazzy um, code slinging, um, <clears throat> where they don't understand if they were had sophisticated monetary education and uh, views like I have, they would realize that this is just completely ridiculous. So I figured it was either, either uh, bogus or possibly a scam or just headed towards disaster or something. And a lot of the problem came down to uh, the fact that I didn't really understand the architecture. And the reason I didn't understand the architecture is that I had been educated in economics, but not in things like you know, the distributed networks and why those matter, or um, cryptography, or hashing systems and how those work, or, uh, uh, or any of the protections that have been built in uh, to prevent double spending. And I didn't understand one really critical thing was that, which was that uh, this money wasn't a conventional money, that, that it wasn't just a means of uh, payment, and it wasn't, I should say, it, it wasn't just a, a mere medium of exchange or a store of value, or you can name all these other functions that, that money uh, does, but that it rolls into the monetary unit its own sort of built-in, as it were, payment system, and that that was its critical innovation, <clears throat> that <clears throat> it takes you know, what Visa, MasterCard do for the dollar and clumps it all into a single technology and says, okay, here's your money and the payment system is part of that. And if I had understood that, I would have, you know, and if I had spent a little bit of time understanding distributed networks and cryptography and 
and and hashing and how uh, you know the Bitcoin e- economy kind of reproduces certain features of the physical world within the digital world. If I had understood that, then I would have I would have been all in. But it it took me you know a couple of years really to finally incentivize myself to sit down and try to figure this out and understand it. And then after that happened, and by the way, that only happened once. I had had real-world experience with owning and transferring Bitcoin, um, and and that's what that experience of using it actually got me super curious intellectually. Now I had to unravel, you know, sort of a lifetime of understanding of money and rebuild it on a new basis, and that took me the better part of six months. During which time I had. Um, or even up to a year, um, but during which time I was already writing articles about the topic. <laughs> and so it was based on uh, my experience, you know, not so much knowledge, but just experience. And uh, I've never felt so much pressure in my life to um, repudiate my writings. Um, I, you know, I felt like I was trolled from one end of the internet to the other. Um, it was a it was a scary time because I you know at at no point in the course of this was I absolutely confident that I had latched onto something that actually could work or that does matter. I just had a good intuition that I did, but I couldn't know for sure. So it was it was consuming because I felt like maybe I was surrendering a lifetime of credibility to back you know something that might turn out to be completely ridiculous. So I got myself very much invested in um, the the markets for Bitcoin. And even though I was never the guy who said, look, this is only works if and to the extent that it's constantly rising in value, like I was never that guy, but you, you sort of can't help it. Once your credibility is on the line, you sort of become a cheerleader for ever, uh, ever uh, increasing prices as if that's the test of whether or not uh, the technology is real or not. And it's not. but you know, we, you, we, we all get, we all feel that we all get roped into it. No, I, I completely agree. The episode I just did was about uh, the this last week that I, um, now it will be actually two episodes ago that I just released was about me not trusting my instincts, not trusting my gut and what I knew was true. And I had been mining, you know, back in the day and, uh, I gave it all up. I stopped mining just because I got busy and and made a move and all that kind of stuff. But I look back at old wallets and and what if I would have held on to all that? It was the biggest financial mistake of my life uh, in terms of what could have been. And, and, and yes, it wasn't real money. You know, it was it was the what could have been. But it was a very expensive education. Um, but you know, an education in in needing to understand better the ability to, you know, look at, you know, what really other really smart people in various fields are coming together and saying, putting all that information together, as long as with the, what, what value your instinct and your gut has for you and, uh, and, and trusting that when you know something is going to be something, but, you know, it's easy to look back and, and consider yourself myopic. But, you know, in, in reality, I don't think it is necessarily 
that short-sighted or crazy to really have an inkling of doubt about something that you're going, well, you know, uh, of course this is going to kick thousands of years of, of economic history and, and kind of trends and, and what we've come to understand as being uh, possible. Um, but, you know, when you think back to where you were kind of at that, that inflection point where you kind of realized what Bitcoin was and its potential, and, you know, that was what, you know, kind of going on uh, five, six years ago, where did you think that we would be by now? Not in, in terms of price, but kind of in terms of, of adoption, uh, where, the, where, where it would be. Oh, <clears throat> in, in, uh, adoption, adoption. Um, wow, I had, I'm certain that I had higher hopes for it than have been realized in a, in a way, probably. Um, but yeah, only, only, you know, this is always a problem when you, when you, when the, when the future is really clear to you, um, it's hard to factor time and learning into that. Do you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like if you know for sure that in the future, well, so here's the thing. I, I came to the realization that all existing, um, uh, fiat monies and payment systems were ridiculously old-fashioned uh, by comparison to cryptocurrency. And it would be like if everybody was driving around on a Model T and then you just showed up on a Maserati and drove around town for a while. Uh, you'd think that everybody, and, and, you, and you had them available for people, you'd think that everybody would you know, just like abandon their cars and, uh, and, and drive around the Maserati. And that's sort of the way I looked at it. It's not that I thought that everybody was going to happen overnight or seamlessly or without, you know, all kinds of friction from regulators and that sort of thing. But um, I thought that if the world was a kind of a perfect place, that it would immediately adopt the superior technology and, or at least at some point, you know, adopt superior technology and, and abandon the, uh, the inferior one. But my first... My, the first sign, now, when I was thinking this, you have to remember, this is in early 2013, and there wasn't, there weren't really any regulatory barriers around. Like, this is hard for anybody to remember, but in early, from, from, the, from the time of the invention of Bitcoin up until early 2013, at least in the United States, anyone could start their own crypto dollar exchange. Like there were absolutely no regulatory barriers at all. And there were a ton, like thousands of people were starting these, these exchanges. There was a pure free market. And then I think it was in April of 2013, there was the uh, Financial Crimes Enforcement Network of the U.S. Department of Treasury sent out a fax of all, of all things to a bunch of different exchanges that were then operating um, I'm not sure they even sent emails, but they'd sent some kind of communique. And it was really like a one-page thing that said, look, if you're exchanging uh, Bitcoin for dollars, you've got to register as a money exchange, period. That's it. And what that means is that you have to register in every state. And back in those days, there was a minimum expense of, I don't know, like a quarter million dollars or something like that. So suddenly compliance became this huge issue and everybody dropped out of the industry. And so, and, and so there were a few legacy companies that were, um, uh, that were uh, 
operating like uh, Coinbase and BitPay and some others. And they had the kind of wherewithal to undertake these compliance costs and they kind of survived. But everybody else was, was, was wiped out. I had a, just a, a ton of friends who had all kinds of ingenious ideas for the things they were going to do with with the uh, with with this industry, and they were just kind of wiped out, and and that was the first sign that I thought, uh oh, we are not going to get from here to there so easily. It's going to take a lot more because this is if this, and that was a draconian intervention. These are back in the days when people look back and they think of that was the wild west. It wasn't. I mean, we had already seen the crackdown, you know, coming, and then and then I realized we've got a problem with the on-ramps and the off-ramps uh, with crypto, getting in and getting out. And then the banks started you know, hammering crypto companies and started uh, 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 deleting people's accounts and you know, making some very strict distinctions between businesses that accept crypto and individuals. And it just, it just got tighter and tighter and tighter. And then the companies that are out there, the existing exchanges and, uh, and things, were having to spend more and more and more money on compliance, and then suddenly the lawyers got involved, and it just became a, an immense problem. And it was, it was an interesting thing for me because I just, you know, like I'm a little bit of a dreamer, I think, like a lot of us in this space, and we know what could happen if we had, you know, a competitive environment that was free of regulatory intervention. Um, but we hadn't really entirely thought through the friction, the static, and the difficulties, and the and the d- d- diversions of, of of resources that would take place under under a regulatory framework. And it became a serious problem because the regulators themselves didn't really understand what Bitcoin was, so they kept trying to make it act like it was cash or just a, a dollar economy or just another stock or something. They still, to this day, don't really know what it is, so it's kind of a problem. But these know your customer laws. For example, they they ran headlong into the the problem that that Bitcoin is structured to be a trustless system. <laughs> you, know, so, you know, you had an old style regulatory framework being trying to just slapped onto this currency that was built to be resistant to all this old stuff. For you know, structurally resistant to it, not because it was trying to sneak around the law, but because it was actually su- superior to the thing that was previously regulated by these old regulatory laws. So that that just that set us back years and years and years, and it was that was a terrible diversion. It still is. I think our user interfaces would be much better now if we had. Um, uh, I mean, we would just be further along now if we had had a, a genuine competitive environment and and not so many regulatory diversions and resources wasted on compliance rather than innovation. I think it'd be further along. And then, if you let me, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm on a long monologue here, but but there was this. And then I hate to be, you know, be the, the the guy to raise this topic, but I don't think people talk about it enough. But you know, in the early days, Satoshi, um, you know, when he was still communicating, had warned against um, too broad and a, a a push for acceptance before the thing was really ready for prime time. Like he wasn't convinced it was scalable yet. And part of the problem is the limit on the block size, and there were there are other factors, you know, besides besides. But it was one of the tragedies of the last ten years. I think probably the single greatest tragedy, and you're more than welcome to disagree with me on this. But I, I personally, from a user point of view, found it overwhelming that everybody knew the scaling problem was was coming, 
and uh, there just wasn't much of a, a passion or desire to fix it. At least there was on the part of some people, but there were too many people that were just still kind of, you know, it's extremely conservative in, in outlook. Like, my God, this thing is only around, it's only been around five, six years, you know, uh, seven years now, you know, we're still in the infancy. Let's not change anything about its structure. Let's just be uh, super glad that the thing works at all and not prepare it for any kind of mainstream use. But already the use case was presenting itself in terms of remittances and you know, people were, were really getting on board. And and then, of course, the disastrous year, everybody thinks is the great, you know, the, the great year of, of 2017, but actually it was it was a, a catastrophic year in terms of uh, uh, usability of Bitcoin, and you know my, my old friend Bitcoin, which was which was fast and cheap, just seemingly overnight. I know it was a kind of a gradual process, but it like at least for me personally, uh, became something completely different, and it became basically, you know, less efficient. Um, and more expensive to, to use than than old style monetary systems, and that was that was something I never expected would happen. I mean, and it was my fault because the scaling debate had gone on for a long time. But I was involved in all kinds of other things. I just didn't see it coming. So when I when I saw it, I was just in shock and, and a little bit embarrassed because I looked back at all of my old writings and all the selling points I had given Bitcoin turned out to not really be selling points anymore. Um, so we all know what happened, you know, with the first uh, big fork that, uh, that took place with uh, Bitcoin Cash, and and I supported that mainly because, um, not because I wanted a fork, but because I, I wanted something usable, and you know, and maybe on 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 chain scaling wasn't, you know, it's not a very good long term fix. I don't really know, but it seemed to be. The use case is an important is an important thing, and at the, at the time I saw I heard all these people talking about, oh well, the most important thing is we preserve the store of value function of Bitcoin, um, not the not the medium of exchange function. You know, it's not meant to be cash for the internet. But clearly, it was intended to be cash for the internet. But there's a more th- important theoretical concern that the store of value function is not sustainable if you don't have the use case in place, and this traces back to you know a deeper question of monetary theory and its and its origins. And so we we got this kind of uh, the developer community really to drive a wedge between these between these two things: the store of value and the, and the medium of exchange. And that really kind of broke my heart because it it did structurally change Bitcoin. And then we saw the the massive decentralization of um, of uh, alternative cryptos come into place and. And and the seeming chaos. I mean, it, maybe it would have happened anyway, and I think it's okay. And I'm not saying this is all wholly regrettable and so on, but it's just a fact of history that Bitcoin was not ready for prime time when the world needed it most. And I think that did set us back a long time. I I think that there's you know something in there where you, where you say that uh, not ready for prime time, and that I think that. Bitcoin was maybe exposed a little too early. Uh, I mean, somewhat with the Silk Road, but especially with WikiLeaks. And Satoshi even talked about that that the uh, hornet's nest had gotten stirred and that it was about to descend upon us. And I, 
and, and I kind of think, you know, I do, you know, just kind of a thought experiments with that I've been thinking about, uh, you know, what if Bitcoin had not been exposed so early um, with the Silk Road, but especially, you know, with, with, with WikiLeaks, what if people had not really heard about it mainstream, you know, where would it be today uh, if it had not kind of burst onto the scene um, in such a prominent fashion? Because it kind of went from being a, a niche experiment in a very small community kind of to burst onto the front page news or, you know, or page two or three or four um, of, of the average reader in the country. And more importantly, onto the uh, forefront of regulators and law enforcement and and uh, and lawmakers. And if you know, I wonder that if that had never happened, that maybe the the, the scale of development, or I should say, the the pressure uh, to grow, would have been subsided, uh, and a lot of these issues maybe would have gotten. Um, had more time for development, you know, and that bull run, that first initial one, maybe didn't happen in 2013, 2014. Maybe that did not actually occur till 15, 16, 17. That's interesting. I, I, I don't, you know, that is a really interesting point. I hadn't really thought about, and I, it's funny because I'm glad you're recalling the, all this because it's making my mind race back. You know, in, in early 2013, when I started looking into it, it was one of the biggest frustrations I had was that I couldn't find uh, material even available that was accessible to the average person, even the average smart person. I mean, it was all just extremely difficult. Like, like now I read the white paper and it just like every bit of it makes perfect sense to me. I love reading the white paper and I redo it, you know, I read it over and over again, <laughs> you know, like all of us. But when I first read it, I thought, well, this is just, I can't understand a word of this because I didn't, I wasn't schooled enough in, in the technology really to understand it. So what I did, uh, because I, I was frustrated that, well, what it told me was that, that most of the people involved in the, in the industry were just computer programmers. And I really wanted economists, philosophers, historians, um, you know, just, just, you know, prophets of the, the digital age, generally, whatever, to get together and, ex and evaluate and explain the technology to me. And I couldn't find any conferences that were going on that did this. I know there was, I, I guess, um, the Bitcoin Foundation had run up to that time one national conference, and I think they had maybe prepared a second one. But I just, out of my own like desperate burning curiosity, decided to organize my own conference. And um, that, was, that was sometime in maybe March or April, and I scheduled it for October, I believe, of 2013 in Atlanta, and paid for it myself, and got a few sponsors to... Uh, to uh, reduce the costs, it didn't make a dime, and I even <clears throat> arranged for the travel for a lot of speakers, which people don't do now, because it was mostly intellectuals, and I, it never even occurred to me at the time that I would just, you know, create a pay-to-play conference. Like I didn't even know that was possible or desirable. So I just had entirely intellectuals speaking there, and <clears throat> it's called the Cryptocurrency Conference, held in Atlanta, in, uh, the first week of October, I believe, in uh, in Atlanta, and. I was thrilled that like I had 250 people sign up for it, which was amazing for the first time out. 
And like I say, this is before Bitcoin conferences became a thing. So um, the day before the conference opened, you know, I'm welcoming guests and they're trying to find their hotels and I'm just nervous and I'm trying to print programs and set up the chairs and talking to the catering and all the rest of it. Suddenly the news comes out that Ross Ulbricht had been arrested. That was the day before the conference. And it was all over the news. And here's this drug kingpin and he uses this weird thing called Bitcoin and Wow, I remember uh, introducing the conference the next day. And, and of course, we were all, I don't know if what you were doing, but I was desperately looking at the price because the explanation for the price in those days was not that this is a great technology, not that it has this great future, that, oh my God, here we have for the first time in 6,000 years, you know, a, a currency that's completely independent of government and is, and is censorship resistant and uh, could actually provide a private alternative, which is all the reasons I was interested in it. A lot of other people just explained the value of Bitcoin that it was useful for illegal activity. And in particular, um, buying and selling drugs on this thing called the Silk Road. So uh, people figured that if the Silk Road was taken down and the alleged Dread Pirate Roberts guy um, was arrested, that would cause the magic internet money to plummet in price, which I don't remember what the price was, but am I right in thinking it was something like $130 or something like that? I don't really remember. But um, but I watched the price you know, with great curiosity to see what would happen, and it dipped for like a few minutes, and then 24 hours later, it was actually higher than it was before. And I, I think that that should have, at that moment, been proof of concept. Like, this was the main explanation for Bitcoin's value at the time. Well, it's because everybody's using it on the Silk Road. Well, that arrest and the shutting down of that website had really no negligible impact whatsoever on the price, as I recall. And um, I think I pointed that out, actually, in my opening uh, remarks uh, at the conference that there's clearly something else going on here besides that. And if it had been that, it still would have been interesting. It would have been notable and fascinating, just proof of concept kind of stuff. But apparently, looking at the empirical reality, there was a lot more going on here than just that. And that should have been enough. But of course, one thing you learn after being in the sector for 10 years is that no amount of empirical reality will make any difference to the permanently incredulous mind. I just pulled up uh, the, a, a Guardian article from that time, and it said that it it dipped down uh, from 145 down to 109, and then recovered later that day about 124. Uh, that it was down from a record high of uh, of 266 dollars. So it's probably a good thing that nobody actually uh, actually bought at that time, right? You wouldn't have want wouldn't have wanted to buy the top at two sixty six. Okay, so yeah, glad, thanks for thanks for correcting my yeah right. Uh, yeah, I knew it was something along those lines, but I think like within a couple of days anyway, it was back to where it was, you know, right before the the arrest. So it just didn't. I mean, there was a little bit of a psychological swing, but it wasn't a fundamental swing, and. Uh, uh, and and that and so that, therefore the mainstream theory for why anybody cared about Bitcoin at all was exploded like overnight. But it just made no difference whatsoever. 
and I remember this very well because I remember in the summer of 2013, I was giving a talk in Vancouver at a financial conference, and I was talking about this, you know, and like people were not talking about this technology at all at any kind of mainstream uh, investor event. So anybody who breathed the word Bitcoin in those days in the summer of 2013 was automatically written off as a crazy and a crank, right? So, but I did it anyway. Um, and then I was surrounded by people afterwards and this very sharp woman who came up to me, she said, uh, listen, I have a theory and I want you to confirm it. Is this the thing that everybody's using on the uh, the illegal dark web uh, drug markets. I said, yes, it is. She goes, aha, that's the reason for the value. Thank you very much. I understand it now. And she walked off. <clears throat> and I remember thinking at the time, yeah, you think you understand. You really don't understand, do you? Yeah, that's, you know, that's interesting that you, that you mentioned that. Um, because that, that was the, the, you know, the terrorism thing. That was the kind of the trope of around the 2013 time period, right? That was the attack vector at the time that, you know, Bitcoin's only used for dark markets and 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 for funding terrorists. And for, for a while, that kind of disappeared. I mean, it was always kind of in the background. It was always kind of hiding back there, but it kind of disappeared. Uh, it was not as, as in the forefront as, as it was at that time. Um, you know, and it's not that it's, it's going to have gone away forever because, I mean, we're really only one event away there's some sort of incident and one of the suspects has some sort of hot wallet app with three dollars in bitcoin in it from that kind of being another attack vector again but um you know going back to the fork you know this all kind of depends on exactly which side of the scaling debate you're on but you you know no matter which side you you talk to they will both agree that bitcoin did suffer an attack in 2017 um and both sides will say that they thwarted the, uh, an attack and one side would say that um uh, the attack was to keep block sizes unnecessarily uh, small and and raise up fees. Another one would say that they uh, stopped an attack on Bitcoin to to increase the block sizes and therefore centralized mining and so on and so on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, yeah, so both sides definitely did see 2017 as an attack and and a victory, right, for their sides. And and uh, I guess it remains to to be seen uh, which one the market ultimately chooses. Um, although both sides will say that they, they are winning and will eventually win. Uh, but where do you see the greatest attack vector for Bitcoin in the coming 10 years? Well, <clears throat> it's definitely going to be uh, compliance issues uh, and know your customer uh, laws and issues concerning um, uh, you know, treating, treating Bitcoin like a, like a, like a personal uh, bank you know, private, private Swiss bank and, and this sort of thing. So it's going to be money laundering, uh, probably, um, tax evasion, you know, just, just non, non-compliance stuff. And it's going to be enormously, um, frustrating really, I think for, for everybody. And, and, and just to see the regulatory news, you know, tightened and tightened and tightened, but it, you know, and, and I think, so long as normal economic conditions prevail, this is going to be the way things are, and and we don't see a big up t- uptick in um, in adoption. This will this will uh, continue to happen. However, and this is kind of the great unknown. At some point, we're going to experience 
something like 2008 all over again. It's not going to be exactly like that. It'll be a different sector. It'll be it'll have a different trigger. It'll have different effects. Um, but this time, the Fed has virtually no flexibility to move like it like it did in 2008 to increase reserves the way it did for the banking sector in those days because its, its flexibility is is uh, basically gone. Especially now that the Fed has stopped raising rates anymore and and its balance sheets it's had to interrupt its. Uh, progress towards fixing patching up its balance sheet. So it just doesn't have the, the flexibility that it had in 2008. So you could make an argument that the next financial crisis is going to be worse. And it's definitely coming, whether it comes in one year or in five years or in eight years, you know, I don't know. Um, but uh, that would be, uh, you know, in that period of time. And suddenly the merit of Bitcoin is going to be readily apparent. You know, all over again, and we're going to see you know a level of adoption. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't care how much the masters of the universe think they can control the system. They can't control the system once once people start seeing Bitcoin as sound money that is untouchable and um, usable and safe and a how do you say a uh, yeah safe haven you know for people's wealth. Um, at that point, there's there's not going to be any turning back. And and, and that's interesting, you know, because when I, I look back, I kind of basically see kind of uh, uh, three uh, waves of adoption, three themes in those waves of adoption. You know, the first was the tech uh, adoption scene, uh, theme. And you see this in kind of the early developers, right? So the Hal Finney's, uh, uh, Gavin, you know, a lot of those early adopters that were really tech savvy people who understood the language of Bitcoin. And the next wave uh, was kind of more the the political theme, um, and and this was most notably you know people like yourself uh, in the liberty movement, especially who came to be kind of the evangelizers, um, and spread the message of Bitcoin through through the through the political adoption theme, and then we saw the speculator adoption theme play out. Uh, this was in you know 2014. Uh, and then we kind of saw another, you know, wave to that. And the speculative adoption theme, I think, is still going to, you know, play out um, um, in, in smaller and smaller waves. But do you, so you think that this will actually be the next wave of adoption? Um, this this safe haven, uh, you know, people running away from the the crashing of fiat markets. Sure. Sure, and and I think that's it's very important to uh, to to recognize that the the price patterns of of safe haven assets after two thousand eight defied every expectation from everybody because there's always a safe haven, there's always a, a go to place to get away from the mainstream financial system, which has proven to be so incredibly unstable and unreliable over the many decades of its just its progressive destruction. And so there's always been an alternative, and that's usually always been precious metals. Um, after 2008, that was not true. It completely changed, and the great benefit of that sort of safe haven psychology flowed to crypto. Even though crypto is not that well known, it's still for the smart money. That's where that's that's that became the safe haven asset. And I, I think it's extremely important. I've heard very little talk about this uh, because. Uh, you know, gold. What gold was has for thousands of years been the go-to thing for for 
that you would you would run to in in the event of failing fiat currencies, and and it's still you know a hugely valued asset, um, you know all over the world. I mean, China banks can't seem to get a, get enough of it, and it's still it's still this really important uh, thing. But the, the the question is whether or not um, there's any real upward potential to the price in the event of a mass not not just bank demand but mass demand and and I'm not sure that the evidence is really there that that uh, has much of a future and if that's true that's that's a dramatic change from the past we talked briefly at the beginning about your book uh, right-wing collectivism and in that book you talk about, the rise of the Hegelian right and left. And, and I think that those themes are, you know, obviously emerging now, but that they will become, you know, more and more dominant in, in the future as we move forward. So I was wondering if you could explain what those terms mean uh, and, and how is it going to affect, you know, the, the future political climate uh, that, you know, Bitcoin will be operating in? Sure. Well, and anybody who reads the papers knows that there's this, you know, endless, ongoing, incredibly tedious struggle between the left and the right. And you probably have your favorite, you know, everybody has their favorite team. <laughs> it's like the Super Bowl or something. <coughs> and um, and there's a perception that one team has to win and it can only happen, or the victory can only happen from crushing the other side. But, you know, what people don't really recognize is that really there's so much in common between these two competitive forces. They're both... Uh, they're, they're they're both authoritarians with with different uh, social and cultural different social and economic priorities and different cultural pitches and they're you know uniquely structured to manipulate highly uh, politicized societies. I, th I think most people actually are not involved in this ridiculous struggle, but. Uh, the newspapers can't stop uh, reporting uh, on it, and it's getting more intense, you know, every day. And you can see it um, on one hand with the New Zealand shooter the other day, you know, proclaiming his fealty to the Fuhrer and to, to a right Hegelian uh, historicist, you know, hard racist uh, uh, framework of uh, homogeneous society and the meritorious use of violence to wipe out the uh, the opposition. That's on one hand, and then on the other hand, you have you know, the very weird rise of socialism in the United States where you have, you know, wacky things like the Green New Deal being reported as normal news where, you know, here's a here's a, a program being, being asserted by certain uh, very fashionable people within a single uh, political party that is, that is imagining that we need to abolish internal combustion within the next 10 years and end plane travel. Um, you know, overseas and replace everything with wind power, you know, which is the, the, the biggest, craziest fantasy you can ever imagine. I mean, so you have two fantastic versions of political reality being presented to us. I mean, one, a perfectly homogeneous um, society ruled by authoritarian uh, dictatorship and, and central planning for revanchist and restorative reactionary purposes. And on the other hand, this kind of complete fantasy of a socialist primitivism being administered by you know highly educated uh, um, ideologues on the left. So, and 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 it's very dangerous this this civil war that's taking place between the two because everybody else is going to get caught caught between them. And and like say everybody has their favorite uh, side in the struggle, but uh, they fuel each other. 
you know, the, you know, once has, has, oh, look, if we don't rally around our guy, then this guy is going to win. And the other side says, oh, look how terrible that guy is. We better rally around our guy or that guy is going to win. And it's all just a kind of a struggle for control. And neither one are favoring what I favor, which is just a, a normal society where people are left alone to conduct their lives and, you know, innovate and, and, live at live at peace with our neighbors. I mean that's that's what I think the vast majority of humanity wants, but we we've built these gigantic stakes, these states around us, and there's the competition to control them has become, you know, ever more intense and and very bitter. And I I'm hoping that in my lifetime we we see um you know people recognize this the error of, of their ways and, and go back to a, a kind of a a normal bourgeois belle epoque of uh, peace and prosperity, but um, to my shock, it's it's not getting better. It actually seems to be getting worse. You know, it's kind of interesting because we, we, we see that uh, within Bitcoin. Um, on Twitter, there's a thread with uh, involving Peter McCormack of the What Bitcoin Did podcast, and it, we're kind of talking about the I can't remember the exact genesis of it, but uh, by the time that I kind of jumped in, they were talking about the different, you know, ideologies uh, within within Bitcoin and within any culture or social movement, whatever. Um, I don't know if you necessarily uh, agree with this, but there's always kind of the the liberal and conservative wings, and they need each other to an extent. Um, the conservatives make sure that things don't get. Uh, I, I don't want to misuse the term anarchic, uh, more, I guess, chaotic is a better term. Um, without the conservatives, things can get very chaotic if the liberal wing switches too far to that side. Um, and if there's uh, too much power in the conservative wing, things can get uh, stagnant and and uh, no longer grow, no longer be vibrant. The problem being that with these pendulum swings from uh, liberal to conservative is that uh, whenever they swing too far, it's n not even the actual reactions of it being too conservative, too liberal, but also the counter reactions from the other side that can also, uh, you know, cause basically full-on chaos to 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 erupt. Yeah, and every and and what you and what you call uh, liberalism and and conservatism actually get squeezed out. Right by uh, by on on uh, by two forms of extremists, you know, left extremists and right extremists, and it's actually really interesting because, like old fashioned, what you call liberalism, and I I prefer the old definition of liberalism, you know, the nineteenth century. But let's say you use a nineteen eighties or nineties, like a nineteen nineties definition of liberalism, which was like good government, uh, you know, a certain amount of fr fr frugality uh, with an emphasis on maybe fairness and access and equal opportunity, you know, like that. I mean, that seems to be, that seems to be like, it's not even around anymore, really. I mean, like a responsible, uh, sane, uh, liberal-style person from the 1990s is now shouted down by the extremists on the left. And then you have, you know, the. I'm sorry, my, my mechanical <laughs> no, clock it. here. By the way, it's not, it's not being operated by uh, quartz technology, much less blockchain. Um, <laughs> but um, then on on uh, then you have you know on, uh, the extremists on the right are you know f freezing out, you know the, the sort of 80s 80s and 90s style conservatism, 
that I was raised with, and it, which is it hardly even exists anymore. I mean, like, like just for example, this this protectionism thing. I mean, it's just amazing. Um, we had a consensus, basically, in this country for that free trade was good and that peace was good and that we should have as much trade as possible and that we should expand the division of labor because that's a, like a guarantor of peace. And like hardly anybody even questioned that. And there are a few efforts at like, oh, you know, don't dump your products on us and oh, we're going to protect this industry against unfair foreign competition. But there was not, it, wasn't, it wasn't a systematic all-embracing ideology, but that has completely changed. And the same thing is true about immigration. I mean, you can, you can go back to the 1980s and see debates between uh, uh, candidates Bush and Reagan. Uh, it was 19, like 1980. Yeah, I guess about 1980, right? Or maybe it, was, maybe it was the 84 race. I don't know. I think Reagan was unchallenged in 84, so it would have been 80. And they're trying to outdo each other on who favors free immigration more. So it was more pro-immigrant. This is within the Republican Party. You know, so... Things have dramatically changed, and and the extremes have really taken over. It's really quite extraordinary. And it's funny, because when I was in graduate school, we used to talk about the medium voter theorem and how um, ultimately there was a kind of a logic in politics where everybody would gravitate towards the middle, and nobody could ever change that. So no extreme would ever happen, and that's both good and bad. It means that on one hand, you're protected against fanatics on the left and right. On the other hand, the bad part is that you can't actually make any big fundamental changes in the system. Um, but for whatever reason, the medium voter theorem is just not seem doesn't seem to be holding up anymore. <laughs> and so, and so that sort of sane middle, you know, is is being vanquished from our political systems for reasons that are completely unjustified, as far as I can tell. Because we've never been more prosperous than we are right now. I mean, it's not like we're living in Weimar Germany or the Great Depression. You know, <laughs> those are the old excuses we used to have for why dictatorship comes to power. You know, but now, you know, we're we're all carrying around supercomputers in our pocket, and uh, crime rates, you know, falling. There's uh, infant mortality is almost non-existent, and so on and so on. And all we can do is complain and and demand a dictator. So we're weird people, weird times. No, it's 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 amazing because I, I was just looking at a tweet today, um, and the the individual was <clears throat> she's a time. Uh, she writes for Time Magazine. She has a book deal um, and, and, and some other stuff, I think, for television. And she was retweeting a, a tweet by this uh, same politician that you're talking about who's very fashionable at the moment. And she, she, I can't remember the, the, the gist of it, but she was saying basically that herself and this congresswoman had, had never experienced prosperity in their lives. And, and it, it, was, it just kind of blew me away. And it's just there's no appreciation. I mean, it's it's you're talking, you know, the, this person, like I said, you know, has all these things going for them, um, and you're literally using as kind of your uh, uh, counterpart somebody who's just a recently elected congressperson. And uh, I'm just wondering, you know, I, I don't know about what prosperity uh, they you know what they consider it, but you know, I'm. And a lot of people, of course, there's always outliers, but the vast majority of people in this country don't have that level of prosperity. So I, I just I don't understand this total lack of appreciation as well as for this feeling as though they are, you know, in some bottom rung of society that that needs saving. 
and just society in general. Uh, I don't know the exact ages, but we're talking about people that have roughly been out in this country for the last uh, 30 years or so. And just, you know, over the last 50 years, I mean, the, the quality of life and what you could expect uh, from living in this country is just so much better now than when our parents uh, were growing up. You know, when people who were at, at the same age 30 years ago um, were, were significantly better off with what we have access to. Uh, and I, I don't want to be, I'm not one of those people that blames internet and social media for all our ills. And I am not some sort of Luddite in that sense. But it seems like uh, with kind of this new world of the social media, the louder voices, the, the squeakier wheel gets the grease. And those voices get amplified while, while those um, with a more thoughtful approach do not. And people tend to gravitate towards extremes in, in, in my uh, limited experience. And they, you know, a lot of people who may be, you know, in this case on the left may go, well, I don't really agree with everything that they say, but as far as for the loud voices out there, that's the loud voice that most closely aligns. And, you know, I'm going to support this person because they're my loud voice versus the other person's loud voice. Well, I think everything you said is is valid. And it also reflects a, a, a rising ethos, which I would summarize as being the internet is evil. I mean, this seems to be, you know, a, a growing sense. And I, I think it just simply comes down to the fact that we're going through terrible growing pains in our, in social media. Um, most of the platforms that were, you know, uh, put in place 10 years ago were built on the presumption that pe people are good, that uh, order can spontaneously emerge out of chaos uh, that everybody has a well-intentioned and earnest desire to communicate and get their voices out there. We're going to build technologies that allow that to, to happen, period. That's it. Let's go. You know, off to the races, boom. And then we build algorithmic uh, systems so that you're, you know, we, we, we feed you information based on your interests and so on. And very few people really thought through all the ways in which this could actually go wrong. Um, and then years went by, and uh, you know, uh, YouTube became a kind of a university for for schooling people in extremist ideologies. You know, it's like Nazi university and communist university. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable the way these platforms have been have been used. And I don't think it was anybody's intention, but once ideology gets a hold of the human brain, you know, it's like it's like a brain cancer. You know, it's, it's, it, it causes people to think and do crazy things that are just completely contrary to morality and we're starting to see this t take place and i i'm very sympathetic with uh, the administrators of these platforms you know whether it's twitter or facebook and i know that, that it's all fun to hate hate on these people now but you know anybody who's ever tried to manage so much as a a subreddit or a or an internet forum in the old days knows that there's going to be three percent of the users out there that are going to ruin to attempt to ruin it for everybody else, and you have to be ruthless and excluding them, um, and identifying them, excluding them, and and you know I was involved in moderating some of those early internet forums, and I I got real cynical real fast and i just began to trust my nose and just go up oh, you're gone you're gone you're gone now that's with 300 people 500 people you want to start something that potentially involves a million 10 million 100 million a billion 
I mean, this is just, it's un, it's unmanageable by any kind of artificial intelligence, much less employees sitting around trying to take down posts as they appear. You know, it's just, it's, it's just completely unmanageable. And I don't think people anticipated that. And now we've got this kind of panic that's taken place. Like, oh my God, what have we done? What, what have we done? We're, our privacy is gone. Uh, we're, we're, we're raising a whole generation of, of, of wackos. Uh, we've created systems that, that put a premium, premium on, on uh, reach over quality. And so that makes the most outlandish and far-flung claims uh, super attractive, like ideological porn, to the average casual user. And we've, we've, we've incentivized and built systems that, you know, we're not, that are actually feeding the worst angels of our nature. And th- this has actually happened. And, and I'm, you know, the fix is not obvious. I mean, you, you could just look at something like, Facebook Live Video, okay? So when that came along, and it wasn't too many years ago, it was an amazing thing to realize that in my pocket, I have the ability to reach a billion people just with a couple of uh, uh, buttons I can press. And then then I've got a live audience, and everybody's going to be watching me. I mean, that, that was an unbelievably impressive and astounding thing to happen. You know, I grew up watching the Jetsons. Um, uh, I never imagined a world in which everybody would have their own built-in global television set in their pocket. I mean, just an inconceivable power, and it sounds like the greatest thing that ever happened, but what they never imagined is that certain thrill-seekers and mass murderers would also find this technology um, useful, too. And, And again, I'm not even proposing that I know the fix, but one thing I'm confident of is if we keep the regulators out of it, um, I think the uh, people at the stake in the system and the, techno- and the technologists will, will are more likely to figure out how to m- fix and improve these technologies rather than you know public authority. So I, I think we should you know work very hard to keep them unregulated because I think even though we don't know the fix, I think the fix is going to emerge. And I I have no interest. I mean, at this point, saying this is like weirdly radical, but I'm not giving up on the information age. <laughs> not yet. No, no, not at all. I, I think it's, you know, like you were talking about that. It is strange, you know, that the conservative 20 years ago uh, compared to now is a completely different, different beast. And I am absolutely blown away by this strange movement by conservatives to basically implement a right-wing fairness doctrine on on social media. And I guess I shouldn't be be that surprised, but it it, it still blows me away compared to, you know, because I came from the conservative Republican camp, to see this now manifest is is madness to me uh, compared to what I used to think that that represented. Because it, it, it wasn't even, what, 10, 15, or I guess it's not going on 20 plus years now, because I believe it was during the Clinton administration when that was kind of more in vogue, but I may be wrong. But there was a move by those on the left to implement what's called a fairness doctrine so that uh, radio stations would have to play as many liberal voices as there were conservatives. Of course, like it's kind of weird to go like, well, how do you classify and who is now the government gonna cons- going to say what's a liberal and conservative voice? But 
I do agree though with, with some of those voices that there that there is a bit of a uh, unevenness in how rules are applied, and the fact that a lot of those rules aren't even necessarily published. Um, but I, I I don't think this Faustian bargain is is a good fix market competition to me with a different platform is is the the only way to actually compete and and fix this quote-unquote issue that they have yeah all that's going to do is freeze the bad systems in place and that that's extremely important your regulation of the existing technology is going to bake into our systems everything that's wrong with them and prohibit them from being fixed in the way that they potentially can be fixed. And, and people are working on fixes every single day. But you can't fix them if, they're, if you're going uh, to lock them down, you know, like, like Lego pieces that are frozen into place. You know, they have to be unfrozen if you're going to be able to move them and, and improve the system. So this is a, a hugely important priority, and, and it's disgusting that both the left and the right are just gravitating more and more and more towards this idea of, of regulating the systems. And I, I don't know if you are familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk. He's kind of a, a social media person. He kind of made his bones very early on in YouTube and other social platforms. But his he's very dismissive of the concept that that this is that social media is a bad thing. And his his point has always been that what social media does is that it exposes us. Uh, it's not really something that that changes us per se, but just exposes who we really are. Hey folks, I hope that you're enjoying this episode as much as we are. I don't have any sponsors, so if you could go over to supportmypodcast.com, you'll see all the different ways that you can support the podcast from Amazon links to a bunch of other stuff. You can back us on Bitbacker with crypto. But most of all, if you can go to iTunes and leave a five-star and a written review, it'd be very, very helpful. So thanks again, and enjoy the rest of the show. I think that's probably right. I think that's probably right. I think there's probably tweaks that could be made in algorithms to not cause us to be you know, progressively worse than we actually are. You know, <laughs> and I think that that has become a that's become a problem. Like these the, the the internet rabbit holes. You know, like where we're just mindlessly fed ever more insane things. You know, as we're uh, browsing um, a YouTuber. Twitter or something, you know that that's probably worth a worth a worth a fix. And I, I don't know what that looks like entirely. I think it probably looks something like Google's algorithms, where you know Google recognized very early on that they had to have a credibility rating for uh, its searches. And I'm not saying they deployed it perfectly, but at least there's some there was some effort to weight uh, search results based on. Um, you know some some credibility factors, and and it seems like uh, social media never really got around to doing that. So I, I think that's probably what the fix is is going to come down to. But I agree with you generally that I don't I don't think human nature is human beings are not worse now than they've ever been. It's just that we actually are discovering this now, and I have to think that that's a good thing. You know, even if it's even if we're looking at horrible things, it's probably better to know than not to know. And I'm with John Stuart Mill on this question. I really do believe this. You know, I'm an, I'm an enlightened liberal of the old school. I really think that 
that um, you can't fix a problem unless you know about it. And and uh, the information age as it stands now in 2019 has been very good at probably fortunately in showing us you know terrible things we didn't want to see. But that's that's the first step towards finding a fix. Yeah, I. I agree. I I think that sunlight, you know, the term, the old adage that sunlight is the best disinfectant fits well. And these people with these terrible ideals, I want to know who they are. And I think that them being exposed and out in the open is the best way to go about this because censoring them is not going to do anything but send them to some other dark corner of the internet uh, where they are going to fester. And it, it doesn't actually solve anything. It is just it's a stopgap and you think because you don't see it it's not occurring oh and they love it and they feed off of it too and i go back and forth and like on the and it creates a martyr mentality oh right? sure 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 and and then once you get into the in the habit of believing that because something is inaccessible that must make it true i mean once once you you take that step uh you know there's no there's no there's no bottom really uh, where you can go, and then, and then, yeah, at that point, the, all the censorship and all the uh, attempts to keep you from knowing things just ends up completely backfiring. I, I completely, I agree with you, and you know, I understand the people that, you know, after World War II wanted to ban Mein Kampf or something like that, but I, I don't think it's really, uh, or or prohibit people from seeing, you know, uh, uh, that Hitler propaganda film from 1934, whatever it's called. Try for the will, but I don't. I don't think it, in the long run, it actually does any good. I don't think it keeps Nazism at bay. Um, I, I, I think it's better that people know rather than not know. And you, you see and, this in uh, Germany, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. In Germany, it's illegal to have uh, war memorabilia or the that book or uh, any you know website, anything that displays the symbolism, but it has not clamped it down. Uh, it's festered below the surface, unseen, and now sure. it's starting to explode again um, onto the national scene. Yeah, sure. It didn't work. That's exactly right. It, it it didn't work. And whereas, like to me, like something like Mein Kampf, which is a, a dreadfully boring and stupid book, um, with a barely, you know, but there's a genocidal impulse in that in that book, even if you don't, even if it's never stated outright. Um, I think it's important for people to, to to know what's in that work, and and Triumph of the Will is a is a brilliant propaganda film that that actually shows you the ghastliness and horror of what the rise of totalitarianism really looks like from a point of view of political propaganda, and I think it's an extremely instructive film to watch. I mean, I I find it just just chilling beyond belief. And and it's shocking to me that anybody would have ever uh, censored it because it actually actually serves as a really important warning for the future. No, and and kind of zoom zoom back out uh, onto Bitcoin. You know, right now I'm looking over at uh, on my desk here and I have, I'm, I'm trying to put together this art piece, but anyways, part of it is, a bunch of uh, inflated world currencies, you know, the $100 trillion Zimbabwe note. But one of the ones I'm looking at right now is a uh, 100 million Reichsmark note from uh, 1923 in, in Weimar, Germany. And, and what brought this up was I was having an online discussion with somebody, which is always very fruitful. And we were talking, or I, you know, I was just saying kind of the lack of necessity of war 
and of course the the low-hanging fruit for for someone to bring up is always world war ii um just because of the stark contrast of 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 villains that were present but without you know the end of world war one the armistice and the punitive punitive um actions taken on the on germany that affected their economy so terribly that i don't think that there there would have been the ability for someone um you know a failed artist um to to rise up to that level of power but that it's it's these destructive natures of of inflated currencies that destroy economies and lead to people making rash decisions and i know uh the caveat that this is kind of definitely down down the road of the what if machine. Oh, I think that's right. I mean, it's hard to, as you say, you know, to uh, do conjectural history like that. But there's no question that when a currency f- fails, it undermines it's it the society itself fails. And it's not just the economy, right? It's the whole society. It's the culture. It's people's sense of reality. Uh, hope in the future, you know, like it, it really promotes like a vicious nihilism. It leads to uh, dictatorship, and and that's that's how that's what that's how Hitler's message resonated. People, it's like, look, your currency failed. You can't you can't trust your you can't trust the system. You know, uh, the only thing you really trust is is uh, the race, and and we better unite. You know, around our biology. That's what's permanent. That's what's real. Uh, it's not that your fake, uh, you know, money-making schemes that matter. It's 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 your blood uh, that's pumping through you. That's what's that's the real unchanging force. And it was a message that could only resonate in a society in which um, was prepared for it by the failure of the Reichsmark, you know, which was. You know, it was the, one of the well, the worst hyperinflation of the 20th century, really, up until uh, up until later, I guess, up to that point in history. And there's there's no doubt that the rise of Hitler was connected with that, and that was right in the heart of Europe, right, the most civilized country, blah 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 blah. And what a catastrophe, you know. So the cause of sound money is bound up with the cause of peace, prosperity, and the good life. That's the lesson I think we should take from the Weimar hyperinflation and its aftermath. That was the very first exposure I ever had to any kind of economic history. I read, I read about the Weimar inflation when I was 20 years old. It rocked my world, and I've spent the rest of my life thinking about it and trying to work towards some kind of solution to, so that, that nightmare will never visit the world again. And the, and the last question I'd like to ask you, I guess it's a two-part or I guess technically three-part question, is uh, looking back over the last 10 years, what was your greatest joy and disappointment in that period? And what, what do you see, uh, where do you see Bitcoin in the next 10 years? Um, okay, so my greatest joy was to, was to discover that, that Bitcoin uh, is real and it works and that I was not wrong when I risked my entire reputation and my professional career in an article in February of 2013, in which I celebrated this technology and what it was coming. So I turned out to be right about that, and that was 
very, very satisfying because I didn't know for sure. <laughs> right? I had to, I had to trust my eyes over my instincts, or, or I should say, my eyes over my bad theory, and then slowly adapt my theory. And I took out from that, from that experience, uh, a lesson in intellectual humility, really, that I hope I'll never forget. Um, my greatest disappointment was, I think I mentioned to you earlier, that you know, to discover by 2017 that this thing was really not ready for mass adoption. And um, not that I could have done better or would have done better. I understand that there's, there's, there's all kinds of uh, uh, opinions on, on, the, on this matter, but that was actually devastating to me because, um, I don't know, I just, I, I feel like, I feel like, uh, well, let's just say I regret that. You know, I, I, I just regret that. I, again, not even saying that it could have been or should have been fixed, but that, that was a great uh, sad thing for me. Um, but here we are in 2019. I'm actually enormously pleased at the way the sector looks right now. I love the decentralization of and the complex production structures associated with uh, crypto economics today. I just think it's brilliant that it's attracted and maintained so many top minds and earnest uh, developers and innovative entrepreneurs. And I just think it's, that's just tremendous. And I think that at the current pace of development, uh, we're going to look back, I think, in 10 years and say, oh, um, you know, the release of that white paper in 2008 was the beginning of a transformation. It was the beginning of something glorious, and uh, we should have realized uh, that life would never be the same. I mean, we, we realized this in 2000. Uh, by, by 2009, we looked back and, and saw that the, the dot-com bust was something of an illusion, and I think, uh, you know, leading to, the, to, to really a transformation of the world economy, I think we're going to look back and see uh, the bust of 2018 in, in crypto economics as, as preparing the way for um, transfer, transformation of money and payment systems and the documentation uh, technology we generally have for keeping up with what's mine and what's thine. The blockchain technology, I think, is is we've got enormous future. And I, I, I think the, the upshot of this technology is um, going to be a, a more peaceful and prosperous world. I feel very confident about that. And Jeff, I really appreciate you coming on tonight. So how can uh, how can people get a hold of you and, and where can they find you? Sure. Well, you can um, you can follow all my work and I write, you know, just kind of constantly over at the American Institute for Economic Research and uh, at AIR.org. Uh, an organization founded in 1933. Um, ironically, it's, it's awesome for me because it was founded as, as a kind of a organized intellectual resistance against the American default that was arranged by FDR in 1933, which he stole everybody's gold, closed the banks, and devalued the currency. And the founder of my institute here, E.C. Harwood, said, nope, that's not very good economics, and we need somebody to represent an opposition force for rationality and liberalism, classical liberalism in the world. So I'm very pleased to be speaking to you from AIR right now, and I'd be thrilled if our listeners would go over there, check it out, and subscribe to our, our thrice-weekly email. I will have all the information from this episode 
including contact information, links, and everything like that at digiknowcrypto.com slash 29. That's digiknowcrypto.com slash 29. And Jeffrey, once again, thank you so much. Okay, my pleasure.